Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Adrian Van Vactor for the next hour to take your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to clarify spelling, say you're joining us on Reach Radio and want to use that later on, you can, again, join us on one of our websites, calvarychristianfellowship.com, where our website link will send you to where we are live streaming. Click on the Watch Live tab. And you'll be sent to where not only the broadcast is streaming, but counting down to the next broadcast. And at the bottom of the screen, we'll have the, right below my face here, the email address spelled out for you. It is questions. The questions are plural. F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. You can take uh, full use of that anytime you wish to send us your Bible questions, as well as to join us on social media. YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you join us there, uh, you'll not only be notified when we are going live, if you click the like or subscribe button, but also noting as well, uh, you will be at the mercy of the Tech Tyrants running said platform. So if we are broadcasting, and of course we haven't notified you in advance as to why, then you can still join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform. I only say this with a bit of animus because it has happened before and frequently, so we want to make sure that that is your habit. Join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. You'll be able to join us from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. Mm -hmm. Note that the standards for our questions will be sincere, Bible questions in that order. If they are sincere, that means that you want to hear the answer. It's not just being thrown out there as a challenge or a passing strike. The Bible needs to be the focus of the questions. We're setting ourselves aside to answer questions on that. So make sure that the substance of your answer is going to be in the Bible, not outside of or in some hypothetical universe where the Bible is actually Mm -hmm. made of pizza or whatever. And we'll be happy to address it. You can ask questions too, like about the Book of Mormon as it relates to the Christian faith or the Bible. Yeah, uh, as far as comparison to them, but that's Mm -hmm. the question is the substance. And of course if they are questions, you get points for Jeopardy format. Please ask your question in the form of a question, (laughs) and we will address it accordingly. Since we always want to make sure that God is speaking more than we do, why don't we take this time to pray, and as well for our brother here, uh, he's been doing some painting this afternoon, and uh, the mask was inadequate, so let's make sure that that funnels itself out of its system as well. pressure, yeah, thanks. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to not only lift each other up, but ourselves up before you on the basis of mercy and your grace. Please fill Adrian and I with your spirit, whether it's in regard to physical health and recovery or soundness of mind and clarity of speech and being able to communicate your word. Allow your people to be edified, your heart to be blessed, and your word to be properly represented. We pray this all in Jesus' Mm -hmm. name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Now, this is obviously an issue that we'll want to bring up maybe every month or so, as far as fundamental Christian doctrine is concerned, because what we believe as Christians is what sets us aside from those who claim to believe but aren't actually Christians. And knowing what you believe and why are both key issues. We on the broadcast regularly state that when it comes to controversial side issues like these people don't believe that the rapture is even a thing, or they believe it'll happen at this time or that, 
We always make sure to have reasons for the hope that is within us. We also make sure that we're properly defining our hope as not rooted in the end times, but in this time that we're presently living in and our relationship with God therein. There are four things that we cannot disagree agreeably about with people who also claim to be Christians but don't actually believe Christianity. The dismissal of one or all of these things would result in you believing in either a Jesus that can't save you or a God that ultimately doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that our God is real and that we get the information from him according to what we can reliably trust. So we narrow down our non-negotiables to generally these four. First, the authority, preservation, inspiration, and infallibility of Scripture, that as long as our source of information on what God is and isn't like is sound, then we can have respectful arguments about the handling of certain details or attributes. The second is that we believe in the Trinity, the fact that God is one (laughs) in the sense of being, that we don't Mm -hmm. believe in many gods and that the God of the Bible is just the one that Mm -hmm. we prefer, but that he is the one and only God who has revealed himself uniquely in three persons, the Father, the Spirit, and the third non-negotiable, being that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. Mm -hmm. And the fourth is that through the work of God the Son, the sending of the Spirit by instruction of the Father, we have salvation by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you are a Roman Catholic, then hopefully you can affirm these things as well, but uh, us naughty Protestants uh, tend Mm -hmm. to phrase it in sola fide, sola scriptura, sola deus gloria, and of sola trinitura, if you prefer. But those would be the things that we cannot disagree on, and so also should be things we understand and believe in. Note that if you dedicated your life to Jesus last night, and you're like, why is he speaking in Latin? I don't understand those <laughs> things. Understand there's a difference between not knowing about these things, wanting to look more into these things, and proactively denying these things. There is a difference. But when it comes to the fundamentals, obviously it'll be important, and we want to equip all of you on our, I guess we're revamping Apologetics Monday for now. See the things they get away with when they're away. These are fundamentals for Christian doctrine. You might be a brand new saved person and not necessarily understand inerrancy or maybe not even agree with the same definition of inerrancy we have, you may say, well, I, I think that maybe there may have been some, you know, copious mistakes or something like that. It doesn't mean that you're not but saved, but we do, as, as a part of our, the fundamental beliefs of Orthodox, the Orthodox Christian faith is, you know, Scripture is inspired, preserved, and inerrant, uh, so long as we define what those terms mean. And uh, you can believe that and be an Orthodox Christian, but it doesn't mean that you have to understand and believe that in order to, you know, be born again. So there's a difference there. I would probably just throw that little caveat in there. Yeah, Christians down the road should obviously take the time to understand and affirm these things on their own. But in the face of opposition, obviously, Jehovah's Witnesses would overtly reject the idea of Jesus being God, the idea Mm -hmm. of the Trinity, and the inspiration of Scripture outside of their perversion. Mm -hmm. We can talk to people who are Oneness Pentecostals and others, uh, Mormons, who would deny that there is only one God, and people Mm -hmm. that would insist upon Jesus not being deity, but just a iteration yeah. or an avatar or a guru. A lot of groups out there, the Christadelphians, the Way International, a lot of various groups that deny some of these fundamentals 
that are pretty serious. And, and I remember, we'll talk about why. Yeah, and I remember a Jehovah's Witness came to the door one time, and they're like, well, we believe in the same things. You know, we both believe in Jesus. And, and I said, well, that's where we disagree. See, you have to be honest with me. And I started, started talking to the person standing behind her, the trainee, because I could tell they were kind of new. And I said, you and I believe in a different Jesus. Jesus asked a very important fundamental question and implied that your eternal salvation hangs on the answer to this question, who do you say that I am? If you say he's just, you know, a man called by God or an inspired man, then that's not the same Jesus. If you say he's the incarnate God, that's the that's a different scenario than, than him being just a sent man or a prophet of God. And I said, you believe that Jesus is, and I rattled off a few things that I know Jehovah's Witness believe, and I said, but I believe Jesus, and I talked about, you know, he's a part of the triune God, he's divine, he's eternal, he wasn't created, he didn't come into existence, he incarnated, which is a separate definition, a different meaning of that, but he was never created, he's always existed. And finally, the, the main person looked at me and she goes, well, yeah, you're right, we do believe in a different Jesus. And I said, so I'm happy to talk about why your Jesus is different than mine, but if you just want to sit and talk to me about your Jesus, a different person who, than whom I believe in, then there's really not much for us to talk about. And they left. <laughs> well, but I invited helpful. them in, and they still decided not to chat with me. Yep, and God's word won't return void, and we hope salvation for him ultimately down the road. But the point being made is this. Mm. When we say we believe something, we want to know what that thing is that mm. hopefully we can give some to. Now, starting with the Trinity as its bare bones, what do we mean by Trinity? Obviously, it's a term that was used to describe something, yeah. not a word that we just pick out of the Bible and say, well, that's the, the one yeah, passage. A, theological, a word to describe a theological concept. concept. Yeah, because if you only have one verse to support your belief in something, yeah. especially something fundamental, probably uh, nitpicky. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, you just see it everywhere and that it's properly represented mm -hmm. in each passage and context, yeah. then you got something. So what is this thing? Well, the formal definition of the Trinity, there have been summations we'll give as well mm -hmm. down the road, but it's the belief in four ongoing facts about the nature mm -hmm. of God in action. As revealed in Scripture, the first fact that would make the Trinity true is monotheism. Mono meaning one and theos meaning God. According to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the famous Shema, Israel is informed of the fact, here are Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah. And that is emphatic. We can go to Isaiah 43 and mm -hmm. verse 10, 44, 6 through 8, 45, mm -hmm. verse 5, and I love 14 and 18 and 21. And There's no gods before <laughs> me, nor will there be any after me. Uh, before cetera, me, there was no God formed, nor will there be any yeah. after me. There is no God besides me. I know not one. And since yeah. he knows everything, that's a problem. Not one. Yeah, I alone stretch out the heavens and the earth. If there's anyone else attributed to creation, it's either God or a liar. Mm -hmm. The point being made are all these things. Uh, John 17, 3, Jesus' prayer in the garden. This is eternal life. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. More on that in a minute. Uh, we can go to 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, Galatians 4, 8 through 9. 
you, you see this throughout the scripture reiterated mm-hmm. that numerically in the being of God, of all the things out there that would rightly be called mm-hmm. not just one with power, that's the broad sense of the term God, but what we mean by God as the deity, the mm-hmm. one who orchestrated, defines, and sets the foundation and maintenance of everything that we see that exists, that is what we mean by God. There is one and only one worthy yeah. of that title. Now, the titles that we then emphasize is the second fact. There are certain things that only God, only the true and living God, can rightfully claim about themselves and not be lying. I can say the words, I created the universe. I didn't burst into flames and, you know, get uh, struck mute as a result of Mm -hmm. divine judgment. But if I were to claim this as doctrine, I'd be lying because Mm -hmm. I didn't create the universe. Only God did, and I'm not God. Well, God can only say that and be correct. Yeah, so (laughs) passages, of course, we can go to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens Mm -hmm. and the earth. We could note the passages in Isaiah where he notes he stretches out the heavens all alone. We can go to passages in Job and so forth with him as the not only creator of the universe, but the maintainer of life. And we see other passages in the New Testament that we'll save for a minute because they'll be important when identifying the persons of the mm-hmm. Trinity. But notice so first monotheism. Fact. First fact, one God. one God. Second fact, there are things that only God can truthfully say about himself and not be lying. And if I could just make a comment on that first part of monotheism, this is fundamentally, when I when I talk, I, I spent a lot of time on college campuses where my audience would be pri- predominantly Buddhist or Hindu or Islamic, and, you know, I had to be careful how I said things because I didn't want to give people the wrong understanding. But it's easy to dialogue with people from other religions by breaking down their faith to the fundamentals. I don't need to understand Buddhism in order to dialogue with someone who's a Buddhist. All I have to understand is why the monotheistic view of God is correct and the evidence for that versus a non-theistic religion, because Buddhism is mostly non-theistic. They believe that you know, evil is an illusion, and that reality is somewhat of illusion. Uh, they, and same is true with Hinduism. <laughs> so if, if, I, if I just simply understand why monotheism is true, and understand that those who are monists or pantheists of why those views are wrong, I don't really have to understand intimately the inner workings of Hinduism or Buddhism in order to dialogue with someone. I can sort of uh, defend the Christian faith at those fundamentals. So, for example, with a Buddhist or even a Hindu, like I've spent a lot of time in India, rather than talking about the 330 million deities and why some of them may not be gods, you know, it'd take me 330 million hours of discussion of why each one is not a divine being, that would be a horrible waste of time. But I can just explain why pantheism doesn't work. And pantheism is the idea that many, the word pan, many, and god, theism, there are many gods. But it really breaks down to what's called monism. Monism is the idea that all of reality is one, and that that one reality, I'm sorry, I said pantheism, I meant to say polytheism. Pantheism is the idea that all reality is divine. So the, this camera is divine, this, this microphone is part of the divine creation. You, you got and the I creation, are, you got the creator. Creation yeah. and pantheism is the creator. Polytheism, right, you have same. creation and many creators. Monotheism many creators, yeah. is you have creation and a creator. Correct, yeah. 
uh, with Hinduism, it's confusing because they have 330 million gods, but at the same time, they are pantheists, the idea that all reality is divine. So a monist believes that there's no such thing as a genuine I, you reality. It's just I. We're all part of the great I am. That's monism. The idea that that great I am, that all reality is in, is one, and that there's no separate consciousness. We just that's what it, that's the point of reaching nirvana is to deny your own individuality, lose your state of consciousness, lose all thought of individuality, and then just be one with the universe. Pantheists believe that and just say, and that that great I, that big ocean that we all are a part of, is divine. And so you can easily dispel these notions without having to necessarily understand pantheism. And that was kind of the point I wanted to make of how fundamentally critical the idea of monotheism really is. Because you can break down every world religion into those categories. There's the pantheist, the polytheist, the monotheist, and the non-theist, and the atheist. <laughs> That's it. If you, can, if you can provide a good argument for why monotheism is true then you've just now sort of taken your first step in defending the Christian faith to all the world's faiths. Yeah, and what you believe matters. If you say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I affirm pantheism, you got a problem, because how you define Christianity mm -hmm. needs to come from Scripture. And, of course, Scripture says there's one God, and it's not the creation, so mm -hmm. noting that point. But continuing on, we made the point about there being one God. We made the point about there being things only God can truthfully say about himself, now we get into the nitty-gritty, as it were. Because remember, we have four facts to deal with, we've gone through two. Mm -hmm. Even a, uh, I guess, Mormon and Jehovah's Witness wouldn't disagree with these things so far. Correct, yeah. When we look at Scripture, we see there are three titles given to this God that is doing the sort of things only God can do. That's the third fact. And Maybe uh, consider that a pun, if you will. For, of course, when we go to, for instance, Psalm 90 and verse 2, there's a reference to the Father being from everlasting to everlasting, meaning the one that when you gave birth to the world, even before everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The term Father itself comes from the Old Testament, where it notes him as our creator. But now, O Lord, this is Isaiah 64 and verse 8, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are a potter, we are the work of your hand. We could note God as being all uh, omnipresent, for instance. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27, Solomon, after dedicating the temple, made the observation, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Mm. We also note there's an interesting trait. We're talking about eternal. We talk about creator. We talk about omnipresent. The sun in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 notes the famous Christmas passage. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though are you too little to be considered among the, nation, the tribes of Judah, one shall come from you whose goings forth, his activities, his existence, are from old, even everlasting. So he's existed forever, even though someone's going to be physically born out of you. Mm. Now, we don't believe in reincarnation, so this guy's existence, before his existence, was forever. Now, who has had a forever backwards existence? You and I, we believe we're eternal beings mm -hmm. in being made in the image of God. We will exist infinity forward, mm -hmm. but only God... we're not God, eternal in our essence. We're not innately eternal. Yeah, we aren't <laughs> infinity backward. We right, started yeah. at a certain mm -hmm. point. So if Micah... We've just been given, granted 
through God's sustenance, uh, keeping us alive uh, for eternity. Yeah, and noting that point, the one who was born in Bethlehem, he would be that one. Mm -hmm. So is that the Father? No, we'd identify that in a moment as God the Son. We can also note other passages, noting the Creator, for instance. We talked about him being the one who created the heavens Mm -hmm. and the earth. But if you remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, who is the first distinct title of God given in his act of creation before a word was said, let there be light, in verse 4. The Spirit Spirit of God God. was hovering over the waters. Mm -hmm. We could note in Job chapter 33, uh, again, Job speaking made the observation, the Spirit of God has created me, and His breath sustains me. So, noting all these points, uh, we can go to John chapter 1 and verse 3 in reference to the Word, the Son, the one who, in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. In uh, Job 26 and verse 13, it notes that when the heavens were created... That was the duty of the Spirit. That's not only the creator, but the maintainer. We can talk about God being omnipresent, for instance, in Psalm 139 and verse 7, where David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I go to the grave, you are there. If I make my, uh, take the wings of the dawn, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall uphold me. Uh, In Jesus' statement in the famous Great Commission, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, how could Jesus be with Peter in Rome and Thomas in India and John in Asia Minor all at the same time? That's that trait of omnipresence. Mm -hmm. And on we go. So, and again, we can talk about him knowing the mysteries of God. Only God knows Mm -hmm. the deep things of God. We can talk about God alone being the one who searches the heart and the mind. In Jeremiah 17.10, we can talk about titles given exclusively to God. If you claim to be the first and the last, for example, that would only apply appropriately to God. And on we go. So all these things would appropriately be referring to the one God. Now that's the first three facts. And even then, so far, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, even Oneness Pentecostals Mm -hmm. wouldn't deny this. So what is the fourth fact? There is a distinction made between these persons, between these unique titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The Father is not the Son or Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or Spirit. For clarification. How do we come to that conclusion? Well, the best passage to note the hierarchy, starting, of course, in the Old Testament, is Isaiah 48 and verse 16, where if you go to verse 12, God is speaking, and the conversation continues with that as the topic. He says, now the Lord God, God speaking, and his Spirit have sent me. Now, who has the authority to send God but God? And making this point and building on it, also note that distinction, that God speaking makes a distinction between God and his spirit and himself. So this obviously is curious. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, or uh, 8 through 9, rather, uh, we read at Jesus' baptism that the, a voice from heaven, not from the water, from heaven, said, "'You are my beloved Son.'" in whom I'm well pleased. And mm-hmm. the Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Now, Adrian, mm-hmm. you're not, uh, they're not a trinity, but you have uh, three boys you brought into this world. What do you refer to them as? My boys? 
your sons, right? Yeah. Now, how would they refer to you relationally? The guy that gets them stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the money bags, right? Yep, it's yep. the term father. <laughs> yep. So these are relational terms, but a distinction. You're mm-hmm. not your sons. Your sons aren't you. Right. We're but, distinct from one another. Yeah. But are you all human? Correct. Okay, so we can verify that biologically, I mean, legally, genetically. He's going to make me look like a dummy. Well... He doesn't have to try very hard, but uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm trying to (laughs) give these a layup for you. So the point being made is this. The distinctions made, and you Mm -hmm. wouldn't get this any clearer than in John 16, where Jesus speaking at the Last Supper clarifies, I'm going to send Mm -hmm. the Spirit. I'm not going to come back. I'm going to send the Spirit in my own name. And he, not I, he will tell you of things to come. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus makes a distinction between himself and the Father by saying all things that the Father has are mine. Now, either Jesus is being redundant or he's making a very clear claim here. I and the Father share the ownership of all things, and I'm going to give that ownership of all things to the Spirit for you. This is the comfort. He's not saying, I am myself and I will send you. The persons in this one God are distinct from one another and can function independently. Now, if you need further clarification on this, you can join us in our Wednesday night study, or you can note some exclusive things between the persons of the Trinity. For example, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, I believe, it notes that the Father was the one who sent the Son. The Son did not send himself. The Spirit is the one who indwells us, and that is how we know that we abide in him. If I were to open up my chest cavity and I'd say, Jesus is in my heart, mm-hmm. and then this first century Jewish rabbi pops out in a glorified form, granted, that'd be freaky, right? No, the Son doesn't indwell me. The Father doesn't indwell me. The Spirit indwells me. Likewise, the one who sent these is on the authority of the Father. The Father didn't die on the cross for us. The Spirit didn't die on the cross for us, but they all share those unique attributes. So how do we reconcile all these things? We make the definition of the Trinity line up with Scripture and come to this conclusion. God is one what? God. Mm -hmm. What is He? What is the substance of Him? Just like I am human, God is God. That is what he is in being. God is unique from all of creation, as the creator has right to be, by being three in person. My person is Sean. His person is Adrian. We are both one being, one person. God is one being, Father, Son, or one being God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we come to that conclusion? Fact one, there's one God. Check. Mm -hmm. Fact number two, there are things that only God can truthfully say about himself and not be lying. Check. There are three unique titles given to God that function in unique ways. Check. And finally, there is a distinction, an independent activity, and exclusive Mm -hmm. traits between the persons without violating fact number one. While attributing to each personhood. And that's that's why it took so many years for the early church to codify these already understood beliefs, but just in a way where we weren't, where the church wasn't saying contradictory things. And that's what confuses people by the term Trinity, you know, the idea of tri and unity together. So you have unity, 
oneness and try at the same time. And so without creating contradiction, I, I remember being at Hyde Park at Speaker's Corner just dialoguing with Muslims in the summertime. And This is in Britain, by the way. Yeah, in Britain and in London. And and uh, they would always say, oh, you Christians, you believe in one and three. God is one and three. It's a contradiction. Well, not really. A contradiction is saying God is one God and three gods. But we're not saying that. We're saying what God is and who God is. So when it comes to Categories. what God is, he's one. Who God is... He's three. You and I have the unique um, disadvantage of being one what and one who. God is one what and three who's. So you're talking about two different categorical uh, terms and understandings of the nature of God, and that's why there's no contradiction. You can be one what and three who's and still be um, logically consistent. Which is then what brings us to where people get off the ride, so to speak. We have our four facts. So what happens if, among the four facts, monotheism, unique attributes, the natures of God, and, of course, the uh, independence of those, be- of those persons within God. If you sacrifice monotheism and just say that Jesus is, of course, God, Salvation. that there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that there are things that only God can truly say about himself, but there's more than one God. What do we have? We have polytheism. We have mm-hmm. Mormonism. Right, yeah. The claim that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate like gods. Like in the new Thor movie, Jesus would be just one of those guys sitting in that big God council in the movie. Omnipotent city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, is that what they call it? Omnipotent city? Yeah, whatever. But continuing on, the second fact, what happens if you sacrifice there being only one God, that there are things that that, of course, only God can truthfully say about himself, and that, of course, these persons interact independently, that might be iffy too, but that you sacrifice Jesus as one of them. What would you have? Well, you would have a you form have monotheism, of, but not a personal God, and not, and you wouldn't, if salvation is in no other name, then you've just thrown out the entire, You, as Paul said, you know, then we are the most to be pitied, because if the, the dead are not raised then Christ is not raised. And if Christ was not raised, that means he's not who he said he is. If you remove him out of the equation, then we're just back to God is God, we're sinners, and we're going to spend eternity separated from him because God is too perfect and holy, and we're too sinful and lost and can't even enter into his presence. And now God's this distant, unknowable, you know, uh, creator being and nobody knows who he is or anything about him. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing specific we could narrow down about God that'd be deism. Of course, not salvation, but an interesting perspective well, you, on God. You would, you, know, you could go back to Judaism or some of the other Abrahamic religions, as they like to say, uh, the monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But apart from that, you know, they, they, Islam doesn't get rid of Jesus. They just redefine who he is like some of the other Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. They believe in Jesus. They just different Jesus. (laughs) So at the extent of leaving out unique attributes, there are Mm -hmm. things that only God could be. Well, then it's anyone's guess, because we can't identify the Father, Son, or Spirit any other way. And it it also means God has not been revealed, because like the Gospels say, you know, God revealed himself in a general way through prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his Son. And so Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation of who God is and what God is like and how we can come to know him. So all that is lost if you remove Jesus as the divine Son of God 
eternal divine Son of God out of the equation. Yeah, if we make no distinction between the persons, then what do we have? We have a form of modalism, and of course, if we don't recognize their independence from one another, then you have Unitarianism. And again, none of these things will save you yeah, because you they're lose not the real God. The, 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 what, he's, what Sean's saying is, is that if Jesus is not distinct from the Father, or the Son is not distinct from the Father, and the Father is not distinct from the Spirit, they're not individual persons but still having the unity of being one divine being, then you have what, what Sean referred to as modalism, the idea that, well, no, this is just God, you know, manifesting himself as the Son at that time, and then when Jesus left, now God's back to being the Father, and whenever God is the Spirit, he's just in a different mode. Like, today I'm in uh, show mode for the program. About 30 minutes ago, I was in coughing up dust from spraying masonry stuff on fo- we're make we're making Painter a new studio mode. we're changing the the background we will no longer have this mountainscape here soon but my wife and i are working tirelessly while i'm doing most of the work she's taking home home taking care of twins but anyhow i was in construction mode you know i was having to wash my face and head in the sink and uh, and then when i go home i'm going to be in daddy mode i'm the same person in the same being i'm just in different modes and that's kind of a, a real wimpy definition of modalism. but um, It throws out Isaiah 48, 16 and Mark 1, 9 through 11. So the point being made is this. If you have a scripturally informed and sound understanding of the Trinity, you'll be able to defeat basically mm-hmm. all of these assaults against it that either mischaracterize it, leave out small parts of it, or ultimately are just misunderstanding it themselves. Now, like any complicated issue, calculus is complicated. That doesn't make it false. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word Bible is not in the Bible. The question is the truth statements made about it, taught within it. I heard the word Calvinism isn't in the Bible. I was shocked to hear that. I pretty sure it was in somewhere. Yeah, you you were uh, predestined not to find it yet. Uh, That's a joke. Anyway, the point being made is that, though. Why is the Trinity so important? Because it is informed by everything else we figure out is what it's important. C.S. Lewis referred to the doctrine of the Trinity as either the most ridiculous thing anyone's ever come up to or the most brilliant thing that only makes sense of reality. I mean, even the concept of God being love only makes sense in a Trinitarian way. Love is a dynamic between two persons. It's a it's an expression of self-sacrifice and the giving of oneself for the betterment of someone else. And you can't do that unless there's another person present. So if God is, by definition, love, he had to have not been love prior to the creation of humanity. So God was not love until he made us, and then he became love because now he had someone to love. And now he's dependent on us, thus unworthy of being called God. But if God genuinely is, one of his attributes is to be a God of love, that means that there had to have been a love relationship within the unity of the Trinity for all eternity. And that's the only way to actually say that God legitimately is love is if, the, if something like the Trinity were true. And just as another side note, like the Trinity, if you say, oh, it's like water, it can be gas, it can be liquid, it can be solid. No, that's modalism. Are, that's not those true are Trinity. Those uh, I've, I've heard so many different illustrations. If you have to use something physical to illustrate the Trinity, 
better off just not. <laughs> Stick to the Bible. And if you want a great outline to help you sort this out on your own, I would recommend the website CARM, C-A-R-M, where they have a chart in noting all the scriptural yeah. references regarding the unique and exclusive attributes mm-hmm. of God, the foundations for monotheism, and how these yeah. harmonize philosophically. Now, why is this important? Why does it, I mean, okay, well, first the Bible teaches these four categories. It distinct, it it teaches that God is unique, distinct, eternal, the only God of creation. It teaches that Jesus, the same thing, the create, the one whom all creation, through whom all creation and all created things were made. And, you know, when Jesus makes statements like this in Matthew, where the Pharisees are questioning him, he says, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Uh, David's, they told him, he asked, and then he asked them, how, this is in, by the way, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 onward, he says, how is it then David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm, I think, 110? I'll verify. Uh, The Lord said, the, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That word Lord is curious. It means God. <laughs> Not curious, as in like I wonder. Curious, curious, curious in Greek. yeah. And and he's basically saying God said to God, um, God my said Lord. to God, yeah. God declared to my God. This is David speaking, by the way, inspired by the Spirit, as Jesus points out. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus is quoting the Old Testament that makes the Son of God divine. And he's saying, how can the Messiah be the son of David if David refers to the son of David as his Lord, not just his heir, his his ancestor, but his Lord? And so See Jesus is Micah trying to... five two point. Yeah, Jesus is trying to show them from the Psalms that the son of David, the Messiah, was actually God incarnate. And that was something that... Uh, not all first century Jews believed. There was disputes about who the Messiah would be, and uh, they all knew that he was the son of David, he was going to come as a conquering king, but as far as his divinity, that was not always, uh, at least from what I understand, first century Judaism was not a, a top priority that the Messiah was actually God incarnate. That was something that was sort of a bit of a revelation to people as Jesus was talking about who this Messiah would be that he was. Yeah, so, and it was Psalm 110. It is Psalm 110. But uh, note all those things. If you have further questions about it or need to make sure Mm -hmm. that these things are solidified in your own mind, feel free to let us know. But we did see a need to, and we'll clarify why in a few weeks, uh, why to bring that up. But, But the point being made is that if you deny the Trinity, that's different from not knowing about the Trinity or still figuring out the Trinity. If you deny the Trinity, that means you're not a Christian because a fake Jesus can't save you. But if on the other hand, and you want to know more about the Trinity, understand where everyone in history has gotten it from. With all that being said, uh, we want to dedicate the rest of the time to your questions, starting with Isaiah, who uh, basically is confronted with the idea that, well, everyone's right, because that's your truth and my truth. We don't need <clears throat> more division, yeah. so therefore... So the first let's question, well, he asked a lot of questions. It, it's in one jointed question. Yeah. So the concern is mm-hmm. regarding truth. When yeah. people say, well, you're Catholic and Protestant and this and that, the essence comes down to, well, we have enough division in the world. So when it comes down to that statement in of itself, mm-hmm. there's one clarification. There's too much unnecessary 
division in the world. When people make, you know, the peace sign, obviously there's, um, you know, nuclear disarmament and all that mm-hmm. history behind it and stuff. But the essence of the symbol is the good finger and the bad finger together. Can't we all just get along? The problem is they leave out the fact the bad finger, by fundamental nature, wants to destroy the good finger. They leave that detail out. I've there never are heard things. such a detailed explanation of the peace sign. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, no uh, copyright. I never thought about it that thoroughly. <laughs> I've had dumber conversations, but the point being made is this. When we're put in a situation where people want harmony, but at the expense Mm. of truth, what's more important? And the Christian says yes, but if we sacrifice one or the other, we emphasize truth, Mm. but cause all this conflict, the question is, is that necessary? If people make compromises... They want to achieve harmony, but at the expense of truth, well, then you don't have harmony. You have a lie. So when it comes down... it's not just any truth. It's the specific truths that distinguish what it means to be an Orthodox Christian follower of Jesus, right, than other views that fundamentally, by definition, separate you from those fundamentals. And what are so the consequences of that? In general, like, oh, we're going to argue about the truth of irrelevant things. You know, there's no group that would prefer peace and unity than, believe, than Christians. I mean, that is sort of the hallmark Christian thing is we've lived with centuries of division over secondary or minuscule issues. Of course, to some at those times, it was important, but by and large, the you know, as... So uh, this was attributed to Augustine, but it was not, I don't think it's actually his actual quote, but it's often attributed to him is that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. The idea being that when it comes to the fundamentals, we got to have unity. We got to agree. If it comes to those secondary non-essential issues, let's give each other some liberty. Uh, But everything else, it doesn't matter what it is, we got to always live the life of Christian love towards not only, especially one another as believers, but to those who are not of the faith. We need to love them. It's, as Paul said, it's like keeping hot coals on their head. And so when I when Isaiah, what's his name? Isaiah. 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 Ask, you know, his friend commenting, hey, what difference does it make, Catholic, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness? What matters is, is that these various views on the fundamentals, contradict one another. You know, you cannot say Jesus is the only way and not the only way at the same time. You cannot say there is only one way to heaven through Christ, and there's also ten ways to heaven that are not Christ. That's through a contradiction. Through membership to our church. Exactly. And so I would say I agree. It doesn't matter that you are Calvary or not, because that was one of the other comments that Isaiah made. Is it, oh, it doesn't matter if you're Calvary. Yeah, I would say it doesn't matter what denomination you go to, so long as we're in agreement about those fundamentals. Uh, monotheism, God revealed himself through the scriptures. He revealed himself ultimately through the person of Christ, that Christ is you know, the divine incarnation of God, that he was sinless and lived a sinless life, that you and I, very important, fundamental, are sinners, that we are guilty before a holy God, and that there's nothing we can do to merit God's favor. You know, no no level of, of acts of good can never merit a holy, perfect, righteous God's favor in order for us to be in fellowship and union with God, in order to be with God for eternity and receive the blessings of eternity because we are corrupt law. So we need a savior. We need grace. 
and the only person that can provide that is God himself. So if you if you start diverting from those fundamental truths, and there are many others, <clears throat> you're no longer talk, talking about Orthodox Christian faith. You're talking about a different faith. And, and why it does matter is because of those fundamental truths. I cannot be A and non-A at the same time. And that's exactly what happens when you start getting too ecumenical, is that you start throwing away out the door important fundamental truths that now you, you're no longer what you are. You're no longer a follower of Jesus. You follow nothing because Jesus is defineless. He's, he's without definition because it doesn't matter which version of Jesus you believe in, the Jehovah's Witness version or the Mormons, you know, the brother of Lucifer, the spirit brother, and the God of Earth versus the unlimited, each, you know, unlimited number of gods and earth worlds that are out there in the Mormon pantheon and so on. So every time I break down a new faith, even Islam has a different Jesus. Isa is not the same Jesus as the Jesus of the Bible. It's a different Jesus, even though they use the same name, some of the same stories that were plagiarized. But when you start changing these fundamentals, you're, you're no longer talking about anything. And what it ends up amounting to, Isaac, is that you're saying, the important Isaiah. thing, I'm sorry, Isaiah, I keep wanting to say Isaac. Uh, the important thing, Isaiah, is that <clears throat> what you end up doing is you, you end up saying the importance really is f- believing in something. Now, you don't have your faith in God who revealed himself in the heavens through the prophets, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then ultimately through Jesus. You're saying that it's important just to believe in something. And now your faith is not in Christ, your faith is in faith. You're having your, you're putting your eternal salvation in the hope that you have hope, rather than in the object of our faith, which is Christ. And if that's the truth, because your faith is only as good as the object you put it in, and if that object is without definition, without distinction, without merit, and I can't distinguish it with any other kind of faith, then it really is no faith at all. You're just celebrating the fact that you have faith, and that is your God, is that you have faith. Yeah, and remember, if you want to turn it back on the one who's making the claim, you respect other beliefs enough to note they are different than your own. If you narrow down these belief systems to just a vague understanding, well, there's a God, there's a devil, there's a devil, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's sin, there's salvation, just in a broad sense, but you don't take each religion's claims as to define what that means. That means you're the one who is causing division between all of these people who care about their beliefs and yourself. Who's the one being more not inclusive, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But if, on the other hand, you care about reality, and that's what you have to emphasize, enough to say, if there is a Jesus out there, and it's the Jesus of Islam, then Allahu Akbar, I want to follow him. But if, on the other hand, there is a Jesus out there that died on a cross, literally, uh, despite what Sir Four would tell you, that I want to know why he did that. What did he say about his reasons for going there? Was it the atheist definition, where he was just a sad circumstance of human history? Was he the Hindu commentaries, which says, oh, uh, you know... If he was, existed at all, according to yeah, some atheists. <laughs> yeah, and the point being made as well, we, they have a problem with they make that claim too, because uh, history doesn't have more than one accurate mm-hmm. opinion. That mm-hmm. being said, though, when we are judging these things, we need to make Make sure we judge it after the witnesses come up, not what will keep everyone from paying any fines, mm-hmm. because that's not how this works. I mean, even Scripture teaches us as believers that as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all human beings. But what is the us? 
but us is you know the church, the body of Christ, which has a dis- this distinct um, framework of believing said doctrines that we've highlighted during the this program so far. <laughs> and uh, if you leave if you leave those behind, then you're no longer us. You're just a human being, and and then you're not really ta- you may you might as well talk about a one-ended stick. In that case. (laughs) All right. Let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. Nina has a question about Samson's strength and regards to whether it was this ongoing status of a spiritual gift or if it was just something that came on to him from time to time. The reason it came up was because a friend of hers had a gift of tongues at one point but never practiced it again because it was unnecessary. She uh, learned the language, so to speak. So the question is regarding spiritual gifts that they used when needed or in uh, as a follow-up as well, would it be accurate to say uh, Samson was the seven-foot-tall bodybuilder? Well, in regards to the second question, we don't know what Samson would have looked like. There's uh, modern portrayals that have gotten worse and worse, but the point being made is what we actually know from him. Uh, Samson, according to the lineage of his family, was from the tribe of Dan, so he was Jewish. He wasn't Ethiopian. He wasn't Greek. <laughs> he wasn't you know Asian or whatever. I haven't seen an Asian Samson. That'd be fun. But the you mean he wasn't like Brad Pitt? No, like, looking guy in a guy. <laughs> well, which Brad Pitt? He'd have That's to. That's true. You know, you muscular look at his Troy Brad Pitt, not skinny World War Z Brad Pitt. And also look up some <laughs> side details. This is an aside. He skipped leg day. They had to have a stunt double stand in for his legs on screen. All that being said, um, he wasn't a he wasn't a wimp like Brad Pitt. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a big bulking bodybuilder either. All that we're told about his physical appearance is in um, Judges chapters fourteen and fifteen, where it notes that he had seven dreadlocks. So he, he definitely had the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog mullet going on there. You mean he appropriated dreadlocks? No, this was a long time before that uh, hypersensitivity was in play. Point being made, though, is this. Uh, You're right, Nina, in the proper handling of the text. It didn't say that Samson always had the strength or he used his strength or even used his strength from the Lord. Whenever a great feat of strength was, and there are three main events, when he went into a prolonged battle with nothing but the jawbone of a donkey, when he tore apart a lion with his bare hands, and when he was able to literally, I guess pun intended, flex on a city by just like hulking out and Push, dismantling the, the city gates yeah. and then no not the pillars the the city gates he yeah. just walked with it up a hill and then dropped it as if that was oh, normal that, okay but uh of course that was the last point in his life the spirit of the lord came upon him again but let me just read the text of these incidents and you will hopefully see a trend now is the question whether this was a supernatural strength an ongoing or... supernatural strength or if the spirit just gave him strength when and where he needed it uh, this is is the first instance. This is in Judges chapter 14 and verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah to, with his father and mother and came to the uh, vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And, this is verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord, note the object, came mightily upon him. He was the referent, if you will. And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, and he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. I wouldn't either. That'd be uh, kind of 
traumatic. But note that point. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and then the description of his strength. We go on later in the chapter to Judges 14 and verse 19, where it notes, and this is uh, interesting as well, when the Philistines came against him, remember they had been oppressing Israel for decades at this point, and by oppressing I don't mean incurring heavy taxes or raising the price of gas, I mean they were literally enslaving, butchering, and selling for not-so-nice reasons the Jewish people for these decades. It says in verse 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave changes of clothing to those who explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused. He went back up to his father's house. Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man, noting the marriage there. Uh, We note as well in chapter 15, this is an interesting phenomenon as well, when the uh, jawbone of the donkey incident came along. In verse 14 it says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the spirit Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were in his arms became his flax. You remember Delilah and all that mm-hmm. other fun stuff. What he had been bound with. Then he took the, um, well, skipped a line there. We were on his arms like flax that was burned with fire. The bonds broke loose from his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. And on it goes. Now, just for the sake of time, I'll leave it at that. But if you want a good cross-reference for this in regards to the purpose and intention of spiritual gifts, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the whole chapter notes mm-hmm. that the Spirit distributes each as he, not it, he wills, mm-hmm. according to the purpose which he determines. So noting the gifts of Samson, the gifts of Peter, the gifts of you and me and your friend, all these things are given individually as we need them. It's not some superpower that we're given throughout our entire lives. Samson didn't uh, go to the gym and use his spirit of yeah. the Lord to maintain his physique. He Otherwise, might... it'd be kind of hard to understand why cutting his hair would make his strength go away. Yeah, I mean, you just... <laughs> Probably had nothing to do with his hair. It was the fact that he uh, went back on his commitment and sinned, and then the Holy Spirit used that as a symbol of, uh, that's that's it. You, you've really crossed the line, so we're not going to... We're not in fellowship right now. <laughs> well, and note uh, Judges chapter 13, where it was tied into his Nazarite vow. And what was mm-hmm. important as well is he had made many compromises throughout his life, touching the dead body of the lion when he found honey in it, uh, hanging out in a vineyard, but not necessarily going after the uh, grapes and so forth. He tempted fate a lot of times, and it was ultimately his lack of mm-hmm. uh, discernment and relationships that did him in. But the point being made was this. God made a promise on his life that his spirit would come upon him, not that he he would, you know, have the Arnold bod, and that's all that we know. So I'd stick with that and note yeah. cross-references in the New Testament for significance. Yeah, and, and remember, like it says in Ephesians, where he talks about he gave some as teachers, some as evangelists, some as uh, uh, pastors for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Same with First Corinthians. You know, the, the whole purpose of spiritual gifts is for the edification of the body. So not only... Is there a time and place for these the exercise of these gifts, but they're always geared towards the working and service of the building up of the body of Christ? So I would say it seems like you, yes, that is the correct answer to the question that the, the, these gifts are employed, or I should say in, active, in activity, they're 
they're the, the green light is on <laughs> if you can use that say that uh when you're in service into for the body and and that seems to be pretty apparent all right and then this last question uh comes from the missus Allie wants to know uh how do you use certain or how do certain movies use biblical themes in unusual ways like hidden biblical themes you mentioned star wars is one Superman. Uh, if you if it's you want uh, example yeah, of one, this, and he, the when the movie was when they started modernizing Superman, they were intentionally injecting uh, Christological ideas to piggyback off of that. And Some so they, not so subtle, but the, yeah. <laughs> if you want an example of this in action, because we're pressed for time, uh, this Friday, that would be on the tw- uh, 22nd 22nd. of July from, well, I think, 1 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time to maybe 4 if uh, questions and answers goes that long. I'm going to be discussing the biblical themes in Marvel movies, uh, sp- the good ones, Iron Man to Endgame. Uh, and if you want further topics discussed, I'm doing these things once a month. Uh, since I don't have three hours, I'll just give you a condensed version. When it comes to noticing anything worthwhile or biblical relevance in any themes, it's important first to understand the definition of a parallel. They're not lines that intersect one another. We don't say that Star Wars is the Bible, but right. we do say they're both pointing the same direction, and the common destination is what's key. Or there's a theme or an instance that's that's parallels things that... Uh, are, are we find unique to the Christian faith. Like, the second thing is the goal. When I'm reading these things or looking at these things, I note the parallel with the intention of saying the Bible is my destination. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4, he was talking about food offered to idols, but noting what makes these things distinct. It's what you take into your body. It says, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified, cleansed and set aside for a new purpose by the word of God and prayer. So if I go to Star Wars and I say, oh, the Force is like God. No, it's not. It's a pantheistic and dualistic system. Yeah, he even based the idea of Yoda on the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi guru character to reflect that ideology, that kind of thinking. But at the same time, he used a lot of inspiration of biblical characters and names like the planet Obadiah, Luke the physician, Leah the second wife of Israel, and so forth. So look for these things, but make sure we make the distinction, make sure we remember the goal. The third thing that I'll be discussing in more detail, because the music's just about to start, is remembering that if this is ultimately going to be worthwhile, there are movies that have biblical themes in them, but not the sort that are helpful to you. Make sure that you practice discernment and note that your fellowship with God is the end game, if you will, of this kind of study. Adrian, thank you for joining me. Thank you all as well for asking those questions. We'll be looking forward to answering more tomorrow. Till then, this has been Sean Richards with Adrian Van Vactor on A Reason for Hope. God bless you. Peace. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.